0: All right, you guys, so we have been in this Torah series and we have got perhaps to the book in the early part of the Bible that you may say, I avoid, because it's called numbers. And if you've ever read numbers, you know, it goes something like this. So-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so begot so-and-so, And then so-and-so begot so-and-so and and -and so-and-so begot. That's why we don't read it, right? Because at some point, the begots and the so-and-sos, if we're being honest, we don't even know how to pronounce those names. And the only time that you really are required to read Numbers is when you come to church. You show up on a Sunday you haven't been in a while. They're in Numbers, and they ask you to read. And you get to read. And Behezadek begot Muhammad. Muhammad I begot, that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? Like if it was Bob begot Sam, we would love numbers, but none of us wants to read it. But it may be the greatest mistake we've ever made. We need numbers, and today I want you to see why you and I should read numbers. Take a look at the screen. (laughs)
1: The book of Numbers opens with God speaking to Moses in the wilderness. And though it does begin with a census in which God has Moses count the number of men who would go into Canaan on the offensive, Numbers is not about figures and digits. It's about Israel in the wilderness and their unwillingness to follow God and his commandments. The main place we see this is when God sends Israel to travel to the land of promise, to drive out the inhabitants and live with his presence in the place pledged to Abraham back in Genesis. So upon arrival at the border of Canaan, God told Moses to send men to spy out the land to which he was soon to take them. Here they were, God's chosen civilization, former slaves saved from Egypt's domination on the cusp of entering the promise God had made to generation after generation. But something would soon change them. The spies returned and reported that the inhabitants were too strong. They were like giants. No matter who their god was, Israel could never triumph. And so, the people disobeyed. They would not enter. They would not be compliant. They would not trust God or follow his guidance. And so, God promised a punishment. These people would not receive the land of promise, but would die outside it in the wilderness. All those who witnessed God's miraculous works and yet refused to trust him again and again, none of them. Would enter into this promised land. But Moses interceded, and God heard his cry. So God made a distinction. The younger generation would still enter the land, but everyone counted in the older generation would die. And what we find in the rest of Numbers is that the older generation earns this sentence. For what happened outside Canaan, was not a one-time instance. Instead, Numbers shows us that disobedience was the nature of their existence. In fact, as we trace this people through the wilderness, we see a pattern take shape. We start to notice a cycle. God gives a law or command. Then the people rebel and disobey. So, God brings a deathly punishment, but through Moses, intercession is made. Then it all gets replayed. In order to regroup, in order to regulate, God gives new commands and re-emphasizes the old ones he gave, only to see the people rebel again, fall under punishment, and need to be saved. Whether it was when God gave a commandment about the high priest, only to see a rebellion form when others sought to lead. So, God sent a devastating plague, which was only stopped when intercession was made. Or, when God doubled down with new commands about the priests and their roles, only to see the people rebel again against the commands and authorities he had chose. So, God sent fiery serpents to kill those in this rebellion, which was also stopped only when God provided a way of intercession. This is the cycle in Numbers. This is its constant procession, commands, disobedience, punishment, and intercession. And when we see this cycle, it's easy to start asking questions. Why do they keep disobeying? Why don't they learn their lesson? Why won't they change? Why do they keep committing transgression after transgression? And it's because this is who we are as humans. This is the result of sin's infection. And so the punishment God promised came for all of them. The entirety of the older generation, no matter the intercession, heard God's commandments, chose instead to sin against him, and died in the wilderness. But the story of Numbers is not just about Israel. It is about all of us. So when we, like the younger generation, look at all this disobedience and devastation, we need to see that we, are in the exact same situation. We all participate in sin's cyclical operation. We all have disobeyed and face elimination. We therefore will die outside God's holy nation. Like Israel, we are stuck in this cycle. So what hope do we have to escape it? For even Moses eventually sinned. Even he had his moment of rejection and denial. And since he could not intercede for himself, he would not inherit the land or join the next generation in their survival. So if it wasn't Moses, who would come and make a way of escape from this cycle? Well, the Book of Numbers answers in an unexpected style. God speaks through a pagan named Balaam and prophetically explains the whole hope of the Bible. God would not punish his people like they deserved. Instead, he would offer them a blessing when all they had earned was a curse. Through Balaam, God pointed to a king he would raise out of Israel, who would bring them into the land promised to his people. And the king who would perform this delivering miracle is none other than Jesus, the only one who could finally break sin's cycle. He would do so by being sinless, by not falling into its cycle. And so the word of God became flesh and entered into our sinful mess. But where we disobeyed, he practiced true obedience so that he could enter into the place of our punishment and be our true intercessor our new and better Moses. For only he was worthy, only he was meritorious. So when he voluntarily allowed our punishment to fall on him, instead of dying under it, he rose victorious. So now, Jesus is the way out of the wilderness. He is the way in to God's presence. He obeyed where we couldn't have, died where we should have, so we might enter into the place we never could have. So when the number of your sins are so stacked against you that you feel stuck in its downward spiral, Remember that Jesus is interceding for you and working within you to once and for all break sin's cycle.
0: Father God, um, I'm wounded by the thought of the weight of my sin. Lord, your greatness on my behalf. Lord, I find myself eerily similar to those that wandered in the wilderness. Time and time again know how we should live, knowing the truth of how you desire to be intimate and close to us, intimate and close to me, and how many times I choose sin instead. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive us. Lord, let us see your truth today. Let us be captivated by it. Let us hold on to it diligently with our lives. And may we see how Jesus is the answer for us. Lord, we don't want to be okay this Sunday. We want to be changed. Lord, we don't want to just go through another Sunday. We want to be consumed by you, led by you, changed by you, directed by you. Lord, help us to be people of promise today because of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this moment where we get to see your word come alive. Thank you, God, that you gave it to us. And, Lord, forgive us for the times that we've set it aside for entertainment or family or anything else that would get in the way of your pursuit of making us holy. Lord, we need it. And so, Lord, may it change us today. Let it change me today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Listen, I don't believe that I lied to you when I told you the videos got better. Um, I want to make note again, uh, the man who's behind this, his name is David Bowden. Uh, he is a, a, a spoken word artist. You can go to his website, David Bowden, B-O-W-D-E-N, and see the rest of his work. He is a member of a church in Oklahoma. Uh, he leads a small group and has the chance to go all over the nation and preach and do spoken word, and I'm thankful that he's allowed us to show these videos to not only you as a church, but to our community as well, so that they could know that God is even in the Old Testament in the form of Jesus. Um, today, I want to take time with you to go through the book of Numbers, to give you insight into it, to point you to moments that you may have missed, because we've already talked, we've heard of the begots, we know the numbers, we, we get it. So now what do we do with the book of Numbers because we want it to change us? So let's start with reading Numbers 1, 2 through 4. God gives this commandment to Moses. He says, Take a census of the entire Israelite community by their clans and their fathers' families. Counting the names of every male one by one, you and Aaron are to register those who are 20 years old or more by military divisions. Everyone who can serve in, the, in Israel's army. A man from each tribe is to be with you, each one the head of his ancestral family. So God is asking Moses to count the men who can fight. and um, He is lining them up to go into Canaan and to conquer the land because God knows if they go, he will see the victory. Because it's not about how many men there were they could fight. It was about God. It was about him. So let's look at the end of the census, uh, verses 45 through 46 in your Bible. It says this, So all the Israelites, 20 years old or more, everyone who could serve in Israel's army were registered by their ancestral families. And those registered numbered, 603,550. This is a big number. This is just the men who could fight that were 20 years old and older and could still fight this is not counting the men who could no longer fight this is counting the men who when lined up would go and fight the battle and so you can just imagine that's the number of those men this is a big group of people so we can just imagine these wanderers are just growing in number as time is going on. The book of Numbers gets its name in Hebrews as this, in the wilderness. Only later on as it changed to kind of our understanding of numbers. But really, I like the title, In the Wilderness. I almost wish that was the title, because I think we would read it more then. But because we see numbers, you and I may agree that it's algebra. And numbers and letters don't go together. And so when we see the book of Numbers, we're already turning it off. I don't want to read a bunch of numbers. I don't want to read everybody's name. I do not want to know who's in the tribe of Dan. It means no difference to me. It would if you stayed in the Old Testament for a while to see why the tribe of Dan is counted. We, we just get these amazing moments in the Old Testament, but we move over them so quickly that we miss some lineages. We miss the amazing moment where Jesus shows himself up in time and time again in the Old Testament. And man, in the book of Numbers, he is there. Uh, there's this study Bible called the Jesus Bible. It's what a lot of collegiates are starting to buy it because it comes out of uh, passion city church louis giglio and that group and they had this great quote in it. it says this the book of numbers foreshadows god's sovereign intention to accomplish these purposes against the backdrop of human sin nothing can stop god's plan not even human sin his grace is sufficient to lead his people lovingly into his presence then now and forever numbers is our story we, we just kind of gave it away, though. It, we, we tend to believe it's Israelite's story. It's just theirs, but it's our story. It's a story of how God's plan is still going to be his plan, regardless of what we do with it. He's going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So the book begins and ends with the counting of the fighting men of Israel coming out of Egypt and then going into Canaan. That's why we get numbers as a, a name. Uh, there's two counts in the book of Numbers. Coincidentally, um, I want you to capture this. The second census, remember the first census is uh, 603,000. Uh, the second census is 601. So if they thought it was just by sheer force, they've lost numbers. And losing 2,000 is significant. I don't know about you, but I would rather take the extra two into battle but it wasn't about their numbers. And I want you to capture this for a second. You and I will always get stuck in the equations with God. Is there enough? Am I enough? Do I know enough? Are we big enough? And God is not concerned with the numbers. He wants to see will we be obedient. That's the test of numbers. Numbers is all about while you're in the wilderness of life, will you still be obedient? And frankly, Numbers proves out that we just aren't. We'd like to think that we are. In fact, maybe you're like me. In your walk with the Lord, I really love the mountaintop experiences with God. I love the moments where I get to go on a retreat and I'm in it like two days. And after that second day, it just feels like... Man, you've emptied out so God could just pour into you, and it's exciting. And you want to experience him, and you're like, this is what it should feel like all the time. I, I was in student ministry for so many years. And every single time I took students to camp, the number one thing I heard students say was, why can't church be like camp? Why can't it be like this? And I always tell them, it should be spiritually. But church tends to feel like the wilderness. Let me explain it. Reality hits. All students really loved camp experience, but they wouldn't give up their cell phones for 365 years to have it. Nor would they give up TV. Nor would they give up all the friends they have at school to have it. Neither would we. I heard somebody the other day say, all these kids, all they do is stare at their phones. And as soon as they said that, they went, "Oh, okay." Um, uh, oh, have you seen this story? Oh, look what she put on Facebook. I mean, we are really good at pointing fingers, but numbers is our story. We see that they fail time and time again, and how God has got to issue a judgment so that they'll turn their eyes back to Him. And time and time again, they don't. They face a consequence. Only to go, save me. And God goes, okay, let's go back to the first. This is what I asked you to do. And they go, well, I'm not doing that. Well, here comes the consequence. We'll bring it on. Oh, God, save me. Okay, well, this is what. And before we start to a point and say, how foolish are they? That's us. And that's why the book of Numbers is needed. Because the book of Numbers is more than just. Numbers, the question is, we should trust God even when it feels like the enemy is too large. Numbers 13, when, when Moses is commanded by God to send spies into, the, into Canaan, they go in and they come back and, and they, they bring with them like fruit on a pole that's so big they can't carry it in hands. They carry it on a pole and they come back and they're like, this is what's there. But let me just tell you, giant people are there. And I think we're going to lose, except for two. Except for two. We get this, that Joshua and Caleb are two men that say to them, we should trust God and go. We should trust God. And because of that, they are the only two that are spared with that next generation. The only two. You just imagine for a moment, an a count of 603,000 men, The only two that remain are the two that saw that God could do it. They would be the only two counted in the next census. It's crazy. But see, that's the question we have to ask when we feel like everything in our life is up against a wall. And we feel like we have nowhere else to go. Will we trust God even when we feel like it's insurmountable what's before us? That when it feels like there is no way that could be accomplished. I, I was just talking to a brother just a minute ago about how there there's even medical understanding of how people are made and die, and they've been told this is what the outcome is, and we know this. And I've seen it. I, I've seen it firsthand. A friend of mine whose dad was given two months to live that lived eight more years. Is God big enough to fight our battles? I'm just asking you a personal question. Is he big enough to fight your battles? Because if he is, you've got to trust him even when it feels like the enemy is too big and the task is too vast. And it just seems like there is no way out. In those moments, that is the time exactly when God is his most intimate with you. Because he's asking you to trust him. Just trust me. Just come with me. Just believe I can do amazing things. How much more proof do we need than a whole book written by the very breath of God proving that? And whether you believe the Bible or not, let me just tell you in my experience. As a minister that's walked into hospital rooms where people should not live, and they walk out, I'm telling you, I've seen God move. And because of that, i tell you something. He is worthy to trust when the battles seem too big. He is worthy to trust. And that day, the children of Israel turned their heart away from a holy God who was with them, visibly before them, and saw that the enemy was too big. And any time you and I start to look at the enemy, they will always look bigger than our trust of God. But when our eyes are fixed upon him, there is no enemy big enough. They can't even hope to win with God. There's a book out, whether you like this author or not, uh, uh, by Malcolm Gladwell called David and Goliath. I've shared it before in here. That he writes that David was always the overachiever in the battle. That he believes that Goliath may have had the same disease as Andre the Giant. That he had double vision, which would cause him to look and say, instead of, am I a dog that you throw a stick at me? He says, am I a dog that you would throw sticks at me? He had a shield bearer that would have to go before him because probably at this point he couldn't move very easily. But he looked big. He looked like the enemy that no one would want to face. In fact, all of Israel didn't want to march out to fight against Goliath. But God had a plan. And he sent a shepherd boy straight out of the fields with a sling, a long-range weapon. What did Goliath have? A sword and a spear. David had a sling that Malcolm Gladwell argues that he could have slung like the shot of a shotgun. Uh, We know that he's had battles before. He's killed lions, he's helped his sheep away from animals time and time again. He's not afraid of Goliath. He sees him, but what does David say? David never says, I am big enough. I've got a sling and he's got a sword. He never says that in Scripture. He says this, you come at me in the name of your army, but I come at you in the name of the Lord our God. That was the greatest weapon that David had. He knew the outcome of that battle. He didn't have to wonder, can I hit him with a sling? He knew he could. He didn't have to wonder if Goliath was a big lug. He could see him. But all of Israel could see is that is a big man standing across the way from us. He looked like a big enemy. But no enemy is bigger than the name of the Lord our God. Your enemy not big enough. Your problems are not so big that they can't be taken. Whatever you're battling today has absolutely zero chance of beating the Lord your God. Zero. So instead of fighting and hoping that you can win, go to the greater victor. It took a generation for the people of Israel to see that. Certainly, it would have been easier to win with 2,000 more people. But that's not what it was about. It was about a trust that God could do it all. When I read the last two books of the Pentateuch, of the Torah, of the law of Moses, my heart breaks. My heart breaks because I see the wearing down of Moses. Moses. I see that as time has gone on with these people, he, he gets tired and he grows weary. And maybe that's you today. You've tried the Jesus thing and you've just grown weary. The, the, the many things that have been piling on you have just seemed to pile up. And you feel like at this point there is no way out. And when I, when I read that, I've been in those seasons where I feel like the enemies are just too big. And you have too. And it's in those seasons and those moments that we begin to realize our God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. Did you just hear that? I remember learning that as a kid. You could almost hear it echoing throughout the Old Testament. Our God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. You can hear it, can't you? Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. That is a prayer that maybe we need to be praying today. When we hit our knees in our prayer closets in our drive home, maybe it's something that you just need to say time and time again. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And when the enemy says, but, you say, my God is so big, and you just drown him out. I believe that sometimes the greatest thing you could ever do is to remind the enemy, you are not by yourself. You belong to God. And see, that's what the children of Israel couldn't get, but that Caleb and Joshua lived in. They wanted to go then, but they lived a lifetime in the wilderness devastated. Numbers reminds us that we need to fix our eyes on God for the healing our lives need. There's this moment in Numbers 21 where the people begin to complain not only to Moses but to God. Y'all brought us out here. You brought us into the wilderness. We're hungry and we're thirsty and I don't think you know what you're doing. So God's fed up he sends serpents amongst them, and everyone that's bitten dies, and it's devastating, and the people are crying out, whoa, okay, we forgot your God, and help us. Moses, talk to God. Tell him we're sorry, and Moses is like, God, what do we do here? And he just tells him, here's what you're going to do. You're going to make a serpent. You're going to wrap it around a post. When people look unto it, they will be saved from the serpent's poison I've always read that and I read it time and time again in Numbers 21 never once does he say he'll be they'll be saved from a serpent's bite which is devastating to me because I think snakes are awful but they're saved from the poison so Moses makes this bronze serpent he raises it up on a post and when the people look under it they're saved from the poison and this may seem like a trivial moment because there's several others where God rescues his people But in John chapter 3, Jesus mentions this moment. He says this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loves the world that he sent his one and only Son, that anyone who believes in him would not simply perish but have eternal life. I mean, I think we could all quote John 3, 16, but if we missed 14, we missed numbers. God's son would be lifted up and all that would look unto him would be saved. How many people didn't look at that bronze serpent? How many people in their pride went, listen, I still don't like Moses. Even if I die out here, I die. It's better than living. And they died because of their pride. How many people were coached away from it? Listen, don't go there. Let's just do our own thing. Moses is crazy. We can't trust God and died. In the video, there's a line that just hits my soul to the quick. It says that whole generation would have to die. God didn't spare a generation. They all died what was left behind was a generation that I think had a mix I believe there was a mix of those who looked to God and said he's holy and he's powerful and I'm going to trust him And I believe there's a whole other mix of people said I just don't want to die by get bitten by a snake that's crazy I don't want to die like my forefathers did, so I'm just going to be fearful and stay this way. How do we know that? Because they still pursue themselves after this. They conquer Canaan, but it doesn't mean that they get better. They stay sick. You would think at some point we would wise up. Not them, us. We've all heard the quote before, those that don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. Maybe we need better Bible studies going on. Because we keep repeating it. So there is no enemy that can overtake God, and God shows them this. The king at the time hires a man named Balaam, who is a diviner, and he was hired to curse the children of Israel. The king brings him up high, and he says, look, look at all these people. They're going to eat everything that we have. They're going to lick the world clean of stuff. So curse them. Do your best. And Balaam says, I'm going to champion to their God, and I'll find out how I can curse them. And he tries, and he, he's not successful. Tries again, unsuccessful. Tries again, unsuccessful. I mean, the king's pretty mad at this point. And in the midst of that, Numbers 24, we get this amazing verse. And I, I marked it in my Bible, because I, I just, there's moments that we need to underline stuff in our Bibles. You may not believe in that. I, I do. I like marking up my Bible. But in Numbers 24, in the midst of a curse, we get these minutes and these moments with Balaam, who has no proper understanding of a holy God. He is a foreigner. He is an unbeliever. And in the presence of a holy God, as he's trying to curse, God goes, no, no, no. You can't curse what I've blessed. So Numbers 24, verse 17, Balaam says, as I see him. But not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will rise from Israel. In Numbers 24, verse 17, Balaam prophesies about Jesus. It's powerful. He didn't even know what he's really even talking about, but he could see him, but but not yet. He could perceive him, but not really yet. But he could see that there was going to come a king. And his scepter will be there amongst them. God was going to show up in a way amongst his people. And Balaam knew not to make another step. So when you feel like your enemy is going to overtake you, you need to know this. While he may take our very breath, he can't take our God. Because our God is so big. So strong and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. So why should we read Numbers? Of all the books of the Bible, why should we spend time in it? First, we learn that God is sufficient in all things. God knows what he's doing. God knew that he was going to have a people that would be rebellious and they would have to wander in the desert. But God is sufficient. We learn that simple obedience is the requirement of a holy God. Obedient. Not subservient. He doesn't want you just to go through the motions. He wants you to fall in love with him and do what he calls you to do because you love him. Because that's how he operates. Simple obedience. We see the goodness and the severity of God's character. I believe you can't read Numbers without seeing his goodness, but you equally can't read it without seeing the severity of God. Is God the same God of the Old Testament? Yes or no? Yes. So if he is the same God, he acts the same way. Let's never forget, we cannot act like hell and experience heaven's dividends. It doesn't happen. You can't act like Satan and hope to look like Jesus. It's incompatible. He requires holiness. We learned that last week. And the last is this. We see that God has created us for his blessing. In Numbers chapter 6, we get perhaps one of the greatest moments that, frankly, I believe our church knows well. Um... When Dr. Coffey was here, he would end each service with these words. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord give you his peace. That's how we ended our services. It's the priestly blessing that's given in Numbers chapter 6. My question to you is this. Do you want it? Do you want what Numbers 6 verse 24 says? through 26 says do you want his blessing do you want his protection do you want his face to shine upon you and to protect you and to be gracious to you do you want the lord's favor upon your life and do you want his peace you see that was given at the first of numbers chapter six not the end it was a blessing that the priest would pray over the people daily And he would just say it, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look on you with favor and may he give you his peace. They would have heard those words. They would have heard that the Lord wanted to do something in their life that they couldn't come up with on their own. And it's the same prayer that was prayed over these pews this morning. Right where you sit. My question is this: Do you want it? Because if you want the Lord's blessing, His peace, His favor, His grace, you need to know the only way to get that is through holiness. You can't act like the world and expect this in your life. But the problem is this: you can't do it on your own either. You can't be good enough. You can't act right enough. You can't look good enough. You can't be popular enough or have enough money to gain that. You can't buy it. Nor can you manipulate it because God is holy. He can see through fake. To get that, we need someone to take our place. We sang this morning a song that said that we had a grave. It had our name on it. And we had filled it full of ourself and our garbaged life. But then we heard somebody call our name. And we stepped out of that grave. But that's not where our story ended in our song, was it? Because Jesus stepped in. And he took our death. And he paid our price. And he took away our grave. That's what we sang this morning. You may have said the words, but you may not have thought what you said. But what you sang was this. You and I, because of sin, have a grave with our name on it. Kyle's brokenness, Kyle's sin, Kyle's filth. I have a tomb. But that's not my story. Because I saw one part in my life that I could not have enough of me in it. I wanted more sin. I wanted more filth. I wanted more of my own image in it. But I heard somebody call my name. And in my life at that time, I said yes. And I came out. And there was Jesus. And Scripture tells me this. That he willingly laid down his life. That he could take it up again. And mine with his. If I would believe in him, if I would look unto him. Simple obedience. The simple obedience step today is this. If you don't know Jesus and how he calls your name to come out of death and into life, you need to turn your eyes to him. Just like in the desert, the Son of Man must be lifted up that all that look unto him would be saved. For God loved the world like this. He sent Jesus to die for us so that we simply wouldn't go to our graves. We wouldn't even live there anymore. We would have eternal life. If we really saw the world for what it looks like in God's eyes, it would look like a bunch of tombs full of people who are just waiting to die. And God continues to call out their name. And they continue to say, not today. Amen. Not today. You don't know what I've been. You don't, have you even looked in here, God? I mean, you don't know me. God knows you. He crafted you in your mother's womb, is what Scripture says, and I believe it. He knows the number of hairs on your head today. He knows the length of your days. He knows when you wake up and when you go to sleep. He knows your thoughts He knows the words before you even say them, before they come out of your mouth. He knows your words. With all of these things that he knows about you, the one thing I will say this, if he's calling your name, he knows more about you than you know. And so you need to know this. It's time to quit saying not today. You don't know me. Today is the day to say, I'm listening. You are loved by a holy God who wants you to be like Him. He wants you to be a part of His family. He wants to give you His name. Today is your day to say yes. Numbers teaches us this. We need help from us. And Jesus is the help of the book of Numbers. Let me pray for you. Father God, I just ask Lord that in this room Your Spirit would do what it always does. Dwell richly. God, that you would speak of our lives and Lord, that we would see that you have called us. You're calling our name and Lord, you're asking us to say yes. Lord, sin wants to say that we're done. But Jesus says that we can have a new beginning if we'll believe in him. Believe he is who he says he is. And believe that he has paid the price for our sins. And that he is the way of hope to be with you. Lord, the next is simple. Proclaim you before men. Lord, that, that's the best part. Lord, I wanna celebrate with a brother or sister in this room today that wants to know you as Savior and Lord. So Lord, would you speak? Lord, would you move and Lord, would you just be with us in this time of worship? Lord, that is our anxious prayer. In the name of Jesus, we pray amen we're going to have a time we call our offering nothing fancy about it you're going to see people move they're going to gather and they're going to pray they're praying for their lives they're praying for you and they're going to come and kneel up here maybe today you need somebody to pray for you and you just come someone will come pray with you I promise you maybe today you want to talk to somebody and there will be several of us here to meet with you we'd love to visit with you about how to pursue Jesus how to know him And the love he has for you. Regardless, these next few moments, we're going to also be worshiping. We want you to take this last part of our worship service. To really worship Jesus deeply. So, why don't you stand with us. And let's worship Jesus Christ as we pursue his